Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a series of author-hosted podcasts uh, distributing literary content to a worldwide audience. I'm your host, Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here. Very quickly, before we get to the uninterrupted interview today, a few quick words about some of the benefits uh, for our listeners. Number one, we have show notes uh, for every episode uh, with images, links, and information about our authors at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And number two, if you're into audiobooks, uh, we have a relationship with Libro.fm, which supports indie bookstores. If you sign up with Libro to get your audiobooks and use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER, you'll get an extra audiobook free. Number three, if you go to charlottereaderspodcast.com or my personal website, landisway.com, and you sign up for the book report, you're going to get it every other Tuesday. And here's what you'll get. Recommended readings, author interviews and videos, reading and writing tips, doses of inspiration, a free ebook by yours truly, and more. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And finally, we've got a lot of great content that we put out on our exclusive Patreon channel. If you like what we do here, uh, that is our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, and you'd like to help us uh, defray the costs of this project, you can jump over to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, and you can tap into all the great extra content we've got that's curated by our authors and me about uh, their writing lives and the craft and business of writing and other things too. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the uninterrupted story of our guest and the one they've written. In this episode, we visit with lawyer and diplomat turned author and playwright Otho Eskin, author of The Reflecting Pool, a crime thriller starring protagonist and DC homicide detective Marco Thorne. New York Times bestselling author Steve Barry says, rough and ragged as the world it so vividly creates, The Reflecting Pool crackles with twists and turns, making for a fun and heady combination of suspense and intrigue. John Lamb, Providence Journal, says Otho Eskins' The Reflecting Pool is the kind of crime thriller Ross McDonald would have written if he were still alive today. That's a high bar for any author to reach, but Eskin proves more than equal to the task. The Reflecting Pool is a crime thriller constructed along classic lines, and in Zorn, Eskin has created the best crime hero this side of Michael Connolly's Harry Bosch. Woven from the fabric of masters like John T. McDonald, and Robert Crace, this riveting page turner is never afraid to cut its own cloth. Otho, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here. Delighted to make your acquaintance. Yeah, and, and that's uh, I, I love those uh, endorsements there. Uh, rough and ragged, crackles with twists and turns, and then the the reference to Harry Bosch. <laughs> it was nice to get those endorsements, yeah, right? <laughs> makes me want to read the book. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Great work for debut novel. I read this uh, over the Thanksgiving weekend and just loved it. I've always loved thrillers anyway, but uh, I really got into your book and, and really enjoyed reading it. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit um, 
before we get into the heart of the book here, the reflecting pool, a little bit about you, because I think it informs the work here to some extent. Like like me, you're kind of a recovering lawyer too, and uh, you're, <laughs> you're 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 a, you're a former diplomat to, to add to that uh, resume. You served in the U.S. Army and the United States Foreign Service in Washington and Syria, Yugoslavia, Iceland, and Berlin, and then the capital of the German Democratic Republic, which makes for you know a very interesting life. And I'm just curious as to how that experience uh, does inform your thriller writing, and particularly this particular book? Well, I, I must, at some subconscious level, it must uh, inform everything I do. I've, uh, the, the, the reflecting fool itself takes place in Washington, so it doesn't in, in directly concern international uh, events or uh, East Germany or uh, the Cold War, but it, Half my time in the State Department was here in Washington and where I observed uh, inter-departmental uh, dogfights and competition and for, of all kinds and some fairly strong and dangerous people, not physically dangerous, uh, politically dangerous people competing uh, for power and for control. And I drew on that in a very general way in The Reflecting Pool, where you see the main character, uh, Marco Zorn, having to deal with a whole variety of uh, U.S. government agencies, uh, some of which are cooperative, most of which are not cooperative and have their own agenda. So he has to work around that. But he's used to that, and he's very good at uh, intimidating uh, people in power. So in that sense, my background it, it does uh, inflect uh, my work, um, uh, my writing, the fiction work. Uh, the next novel, which I have just completed, it is much more involved with diplomacy and embassies here in Washington. But they all involve co competition among uh, various power groups. And Marco Zorn, my main character, does not uh, deal well with authority. He doesn't deal well with uh, rules. And so he finds himself in, in, in a competitive situation wherever he goes. And he usually comes out ahead. So, so that's basically my, my answer to your question. Yeah. So you, you never carried a gun, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... That that does uh, offer an explanation. You mentioned the interdepartmental dogfights. You do a do a, do a good job of of uh, bringing that into this book, the reflecting pool, and uh, it does it does increase the the the, the tension, uh, creates conflict when you know people supposedly on the same side, that is the side of trying to you know bring down crime, are actually competing with each other toward those ends. Did you actually see that happening as part of your work? Well, not actual crimes in the sense that people are getting murdered in, in, uh, around me, but very definitely uh, the, uh, the, the agencies or the departments that they represent have their own agenda and they are willing to R ride over people, uh, any competition who shows any form of weakness. Uh, my main character shows no weakness, and so he's able to uh, defeat them. But uh, I, I have to admit, I, 
my life has been fairly sheltered in the sense I don't actually know any uh, violent criminals, murderers, or assassins uh, as as I depict them in the novel. But my my I've just extrapolated from my observation of. Uh, turf wars in Washington, and in this case, the turf wars lead uh, all the way to the top, to the to the White House itself. Yeah, well, it's nice to know, Otho, that you're not hanging out with murderers and assassins. And uh, you know, I and, think I would not be welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and you live in Washington, D.C., which is where the novel is set, uh, so nice setting for your first novel, because I'm sure uh, you were able to draw on your experiences having lived there, about the sights and the sounds of the city? Absolutely. This is my hometown. I've, I wasn't born here, but I've lived most of my life, which is pretty long now, here in Washington, D.C. I've also, when I was in the Foreign Service, lived abroad. I, I know other uh, world capitals pretty well, Berlin and uh, Paris and a variety of, of foreign capitals. But Washington is my base and I know it quite well. And I wanted to draw on the kind of monumental aspects of Washington, the the things that people, tourists, for example, who come here or used to come here before the pa- COVID panic, um, would would see the big the, the museums, the big government buildings, the mall where the initial crime is set. And but there's also another Washington uh, which I know more indirectly, not much personal experience, which is a a time of a place of of crime. Uh, Washington has been from time to time afflicted by gang violence, uh, drugs, guns, and uh, it was once called the murder capital of the United States, which is probably an exaggeration, but it was a very dangerous town. And I, if you read the papers carefully, which I do, I mean, there's, there are murders, mostly gang warfare murders, every day of the week. And I wanted to draw on that uh, to reflect the two sides of Washington, the uh, official side, the government, uh, and the, uh, the the real world of a lot of people who are living in 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 if not in actual poverty close to it, and in uh, areas of town which are afflicted by uh, gang shootings almost on a daily basis. So I, I felt that there were I, I wanted to see how those two sides reflected one another in a sense. Now the people I knew and worked with didn't carry guns and shoot each other as part of these um, turf war competitions, although they must have thought about it. But they uh, it's its a background noise if you live here in Washington, and I wanted to have that uh, reflected to the extent that I can. Now, understood, the work I did in the, uh, the story I told in the novel, The Reflecting Pool, is, is fantasy. The guy, the uh, the drug dealers, uh, the um, white supremacists, um, militia, all of that, based on my imagination. But it's a part of the real world here in Washington, and I thought people should know about that. Yeah, that's great. And so we're going to talk more uh, on the Patreon channel about thriller writing and how you got there. But I do have one question related to that. When you sort of retired from the Foreign Service uh, or, or the Diplomatic Corps, and you were thinking about what you wanted to do, or you, you wrote 
plays. I mean, right. you, you had a published play and then you decided after doing that, which I don't think had a lot of gunfire in it. And, no, <laughs> not a single shot was fired. <laughs> not, not a single shot. And, and then you said, I'm going to be a thriller writer. What, what, what flipped for you? Why? Well, I, I, I'm not sure I can actually answer that. I've always wanted to write. Way back when I was in college, I had, I had uh, fantasies of writing things. Well, at that point, I think I was mostly interested in science fiction. I'm if nothing, if not broad-minded in terms of the, the uh, genres that I work in. I uh, when I got was got into the foreign service, my time was completely absorbed with work. And so I didn't have a chance to do anything. But as I came to close to retirement age, and I thought, okay, I'm not going to just stop anything. I'm just going to continue to do some active, be active. And I thought, I'd, I'd like to try my hand at playwriting. When I was in college and a bit before that, I used to go to the theater a lot. I really loved the theater. And I thought, I, I really would enjoy doing that. So I took classes. I went to a lot of theater and then started writing a number of plays. And then I got several of them were produced locally here in Washington and then eventually in New York. And uh, one of them has been produced in uh, in Europe, including in, in Siberia, of all places. Uh, and so it was a, sort of a dream of mine. But as I went along, I thought, well, I, I don't, I don't didn't feel restricted by the uh, format of the theater, but I thought I'd like to expand on that, and I'd like to do long form fiction writing. And I decided, maybe arbitrarily, that I'd do uh, a, a book or narrative in the thriller genre, which I I, I had not read very really much of. I've read a lot of mysteries and uh, various. Uh, fiction of that sort and can continue to do so. I'm not sure why I picked the thriller genre, except that I, w I knew I wanted to have a narrative which was very fast paced, that keeps going, uh, that grabs the, the reader and uh, entertains him or her. And uh, so the thriller genre seemed natural. I wasn't likely to write ro a romance novel because I know nothing about them. And I don't uh, really didn't want to do um, um, young adult novels. So I, I, my choices were limited, but I I really enjoyed, uh, so I started to write uh, and I wrote several different uh, <clears throat> thriller novels, all with the same main character. And then I, I think I hit one in the reflecting pool, which really went rang a bell with me and with others. And so I went from there. That's great. Yeah, it's and you do have it is a fast paced book. It is a page turner, which is nice. It's it's something you can escape and yes. with. Well, yeah. I hope so. I like yeah. to think so. Yeah. So so let's before you have a reading here, which you're going to uh, read from the opening of the book. I want to talk about the book cover and the title just a minute. Uh, the book cover, uh, we'll talk about this because, uh, you know, our listeners can't see it. They'll see it in the show notes, of course. I'll put it there. But uh, this this is a uh, – the colors, uh, it could be very early morning or early evening with the sun uh, setting or rising. There's this reddish tint. There's a – it looks like a scope of a rifle that's got its – you know, that's across the reflecting pool with the, with the uh, Washington Monument in the distance. That's right, yeah. 
well, that's the reflecting pool. Uh, as those of us who live in Washington know it uh, and visit it often, uh, I think the, the, this, the rifle scope is n probably not inherently connected to the narrative, but the, the mur murder in the reflecting pool is. And I wanted, I think the artist who produced that did a very splendid job. Um, wanted to uh, establish that there, uh, there was a threat and danger in this uh, otherwise rather idyllic uh, scene. And I, the reflecting pool itself, um, I see as a reflection of Washington, as I mentioned before, Washington of the, of the monuments, notably the, the Washington Monument, which you see, but also the reflecting the, 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 the danger and violence of the city. Yeah, no, so it, it's really a captivating cover. It pulls you in, perfect for a thriller. Um, and this place where the victim is found in this opening scene, the reflecting pool, is a very public place, yes. very recognizable in D.C. Why put it in such a public spot? You mean why in the, yeah. in the narrative itself? Yeah. Well, a good question. The, 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 the killers... Uh, in this case, were hoping that it would not be identified as a murder. They wanted to, the, the, the victim, who was a young woman, who was a Secret Service agent on the presidential protection detail, is found drowned in the reflecting pool. And the hope of the killers was that it would be dismissed as a, as a terrible and tragic accident. But thanks to the uh, investigation of the lead character he soon discovers it's not an accident at all but a, a murder but that was uh, that was a, a plot that went wrong for the uh for, for the perpetrators yeah and so i want to just quickly on the title here the reflecting pool at first glance you know you think okay the title of the book is the reflecting pool you know that the and that this incident occurs early in the book where this body is found in the reflecting pool. But I'm wondering, because authors spend a lot of time thinking about titles, did you have some double meaning going on there? Because the protagonist, Marco Thorne, has a past, and I'm wondering if it's being kind of reflected back at him. Well, at a certain point, he is does have he has a past. He is, um, a, of course, a homicide detective and a very good one, but he has real eccentricities. Uh, for one thing, he d does not like guns. And it, we, there's a reason for that, well, several reasons, but one of them is that he, uh, as a young man, as a teenager, actually, uh, killed a man um, using a, a gun. And uh, he never wants to go through that again. Uh, it, it was a trauma for him. He, he's not guilty about it because the person he killed was a very bad and dangerous person who had uh, killed his sister. But he feels that the, uh, the having a gun on him uh, is a risk that he's going to use it again and maybe not justifiably. So uh, in that sense, it does reflect him. Also, as I, I think I mentioned before, I wanted the reflecting pool to reflect the city as a whole. We, we see uh, literally in the reflecting pool the monuments of the city. But in, this, in that reflecting pool, a horrible murder has taken place, which kind of, in my mind, reflects the um, 
duality of, of the city of Washington. Uh, it's uh, lovely monuments and it's a kind of d dangerous uh, existence at the same time. Yeah, and that's the wonderful thing about books. It opens our eyes to uh, uh, things in the world we don't otherwise see that might be lurking you know, below the surface. So, hey, let's do this. Um, Otho, uh, let's do a read. We do this on Charlotte's podcast where authors give voice to the written words. I want you to uh, maybe start at a good place at the beginning and just uh, read two or three pages for us and let's find out what's happening at the start of this book. Oh, okay, I'd be delighted to. Chapter one. She looks at me through three feet of water. Rose, I ask. As a homicide detective, I see the faces of the dead all the time. This one is different. I remember those blue eyes, but that can't be possible. On my count of three, the EMS man shouts. Four of us have waded into the pool to retrieve the body. Her hair moves softly. One, two, three. We stagger from the unexpected weight and lift the body to the surface. Her clothes are heavy with water. We wade to the lip of the reflecting pool where we gently place her on the granite edge. I haul myself out of the pool and stand to one side while two medics examine the body. We're too late, of course. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing anyone can do. It's dawn, and morning shadows rake across the mall. The Lincoln Memorial looms at the far end of the pool, and Lincoln watches us from his marble throne. I think about the girl with the blue eyes. She's dead, a medic announces, getting to her feet. I call it at 0 to 722. She's all yours, detective. She's dressed in a gray pantsuit and white blouse. She has dark brown hair, cut short, and wears what looks like a watch on her left wrist, a watch with no numbers. She wears no jewelry and has no wallet or purse or cell phone. She has no shoes. I call for the medical examiner staff and crime scene techs and for uniforms to secure the area. And then walk along the edge of the pool, looking for signs of what might, ha might have happened during the night. I kneel down to examine faint marks on the granite edge. We'll take it from here, a loud voice announces from over my shoulder. A tall man in a police uniform stands above me. Who are you, I ask, as I get to my feet and face him. Captain Darrell Fletcher. United States Park Police, he replies. This is my jurisdiction. His voice is loud, meant to intimidate. Park Police troopers gather behind their senior officer. Who are you, he demands. My name is Zorn. Detective Marco Zorn, Washington, D.C., Metropolitan Police, Homicide. How in hell had the Park Police gotten here so fast? All right, Otho, you set the scene, and uh, it goes on to uh, you know this this battle that takes place between the the, the park police and uh, Marco Zorn, and Marco stands up and pushes back as he's off to do in this book, and uh, it seems he's always pushing back. Let's talk about him as a as a character for just a minute because he is unique in in some respects. He is uh, he doesn't uh, 
he doesn't, uh, I guess, back down to other agencies. He doesn't back down to other authorities. He doesn't carry a gun all the time unless he knows he's going to have to use one. But he's got this other side to him as well. And I was just wondering what went into the creation of this character. Well, he does have another side. Even though he's extremely good at his job as a homicide detective and he closes many cases, he has an, another life. He's really interested in fine art and he has a private collection, a very private collection in his home. He loves uh, 1960s, 70s, cool jazz, uh, and he likes the company of beautiful women. And all of that costs money, for which he is not paid enough on his cop's salary. So he uh, has gotten into the habit of doing work on the side, and the work is not always strictly legal. He doesn't break the law. He doesn't do any violence to anybody. He has a very strong code of honor himself, but he needs the money, particularly to buy the fine art that is squirreled away in one of his rooms. So he works for some organizations and for some people who are not at not at all savory, and in some cases, not at all legal. Uh, he's very, he walks a very fine line, as, but he gets, but he needs that cash. He, uh, in addition to that, as I say, he, he doesn't like violence, uh, and he tries to get out of violent situations, which he finds himself in quite often by, by using his, his uh, imagination and wits. Uh, rather than uh, using uh, a gun and shooting his way out. Occasionally that has to happen because he is involved with some very dangerous people, particularly in his uh, off-hours work. But he will go to a great deal, a great extent to uh, outthink his opposition and defeat them through his uh, cleverness and, and, the, and so the, that makes him a very odd um, uh, detective. He also, as you indicated in your question, he has a problem with authority, has always had. He does not take rules uh, lightly. He uh, works around them or is prepared to break them uh, if necessary, uh, which makes him uh, very controversial within a large organization such as the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington. But he is so successful that he, his his uh, superiors let him get away with this so long as he doesn't get into too serious trouble. You know, well, you've created a, a very interesting character, and I was thinking a little bit about characters I read in the past. Uh, Clive Cussler wrote a character, Dirk Pitt, who had uh, for his underwater adventures, but he, I think he was stationed somewhere close to DC, but he had a collection of uh, vintage automobiles. So he, you've got, you've got this one side who's, who's fighting crime and the other side who's collecting art. So it's nice to have that, uh, have that two sides to it. And it's nice that you've created this character because I assume the next novel is going to be a continuation of Marco Thorne's. That's correct. Yes. The next novel, which I've completed and which will be published next year sometime, uh, is, is features Marco Zorn in a slightly different environment, not dealing with the white house, but dealing with, um, a, a visiting, uh, head of state, where Marco Zorn has been assigned by the Secretary of State, the United States Secretary of State, to be a bodyguard and provide uh, security uh, for this 
a beautiful woman from Montenegro was in Washington and who was the target of an assassination. It's okay. a different world, but it's still Washington. Washington, I also know very well. Yeah, well, in this book here, The Reflecting Pool, you know, things escalate after the initial uh, murder and uh, Zorn is up against uh, lots of different departments, including the White House. And he's he, he becomes not just uh, the hunter, but the hunted, as you say. That's and, right. Uh, which makes uh, it kind of interesting. And he, and, and he and I'm reading along and I'm trying to figure out now how, how is he going to solve this, uh, you know, jam he's gotten himself into. And, and uh, so that kept the pages turning, too. A uh, little bit, though, one thing about theme and then a question about uh, writing life. There's a lot of, you know, I guess, abuse of power, you know, that goes on to some extent in this book. And I'm wondering, I think you said you've seen some of that firsthand and that helped you think through this this plot here? Oh, yes. Um, uh, this was a rather extreme versions of what I observed. But people who are in high power positions don't get there by being uh, shrinking violets. They're usually highly aggressive, highly ambitious uh, men and women, and they are willing to cut corners uh, and do what they have to do. And they often eventually go beyond just the scope of their official job titles. It becomes a personal with them. And if people, uh, I'm just, I'm not, I don't want to make a, a to generalize, most people do their job and at the end of the day go home and have a drink with their wife or husband. But there are people who become absolutely absorbed with the competition. And people in high positions in, in the government and in industry and in other areas are often highly competitive people who, who take their work home with them, so to speak, and will do not will do what they have to do to, uh, uh, to to achieve their ends and often forget that they are, in this case, public servants, but that the, the objectives become personal with them and that can become quite dangerous. Yeah, right, well, let's do this a little bit of your writing life before we uh, finish up today. Um, as we said, you've written plays. Uh, before that, you were a diplomat. Before that, Somewhere along the way, you were a, a lawyer. Not sure how much you used the law in your in your lifetime. You can maybe talk about that. But but here's my question, and that is, uh, I, I think I know that uh, from the dialogue that I see in this book, which was 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 crisp and uh, informative and and lots of fun, that playwriting probably helped you to some extent in the dialogue part of this book. Definitely. Uh, as you mentioned before, before I ever started writing long-term form fiction, I wrote plays and I found myself very comfortable in writing dialogue. I find that it it's a great way to uh, demonstrate character and also uh, conflict. Obviously, you need two people on stage to do that. And so I, when I started to write the thriller, the, the reflecting pool, I found myself just drawn uh, into dialogue. I had to be careful that I didn't do, do too much. I needed to break it up with some action, some shooting and violence, because this is, after all, um, right. a, a, a thriller. And people didn't don't read it in order to get uh, a, a dialogue uh, absorbed. But we, we, we I needed to express character and personality. And I very much uh, liked doing that through dialogue. Um, I, it's just maybe a, 
uh, just a habit that I've formed over the years in writing plays. So, so it definitely informs my fiction writing. I had to be careful that I didn't overdo it, that I had to break the dialogue up with some uh, some action so that people were reminded this is, after all, a thriller. Now, I was going to ask you about that because as a former lawyer, myself, recovering lawyer who was a trial lawyer and uh, always involved in dialogue because you're questioning, answering. You know, when I started writing my books, I found sometimes I'd go p- for pages of dialogue and have to go back and start breaking it up. And And I was wondering if your editor provided some balance there too, because it's not just breaking up with action, but also breaking it up with what's going on around the characters as they're talking. Did you have to train yourself a little bit to do some of that? A little bit, yes. Absolutely. Also, the, uh, the problem, is, I'm sure you know, is if you have a lot of dialogue and, and if it's more than two people, you can lose track of who's talking. So I, always on, on the stage, that's not a problem. But you see uh, right. <laughs> who's talking. Right. But right. in the in, in fiction on a page, you can lose track. It's very easy to lose track. And I find I, when going through uh, my manuscript, I have to uh, make sure that the reader hasn't gotten lost in, in uh, who's doing the talking. Uh, I try to have each, have each character have their own distinctive voice. But in short uh, lines, that's not always possible. So you have to use some device. Like and I get tired of saying he says or she says. Right. <laughs> <laughs> drop drop the tags. That's right. Uh, well, Otho, what uh, what do you hope that uh, readers get from uh, from this book, this adventure with Marco Thorne? Well, in the first place, I hope they get entertained. They're interested. They, they enjoy the the character and the scene setting. Um, I, it is a mystery. Um, there, there is a, a murder at the, on the first page, which is not really uh, solved until the, almost the last page. Uh, so uh, I, th- I think people should, well, can get some pleasure from trying to second guess the, the mystery. There's, I think people should uh, get, have, enjoy the action, and I hope some of the twists and turns of the plot but also just a general feel of the city of Washington. Uh, I think all, lot, many of the scenes are based on places that I've been and visited and uh, offices I've done uh, work in. Uh, so uh, I, I try to get, without making it didactic and pedantic, a little sense of what life is like professionally in a city like Washington. Yeah, that's great. So, hey, listeners, we're going to have a treat here because when we get finished in just a few seconds here, we're going to, Otho and I are going to jump over to our Patreon platform and we're going to, we're going to talk about thriller writing. We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, his writing path. And he's got, he's got some tips on how to write a thriller because he, uh, he, he kind of had to walk through that process himself to, to put together this great, great uh, read here. So you can do that uh, by going to our Patreon page. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. Just hop over there after this episode and uh, at any time. And uh, if you're already a member, great. It'll it'll download directly uh, for you. And uh, if you're not a member yet, uh, join up for just a few dollars a month. And you can get this episode uh, and all the other exclusive episodes we offer to those of you who help us help authors give voice to the written words. Otho, I'm excited about our next conversation. I appreciate you coming on to talk about uh, this. And I'm really excited about the fact that uh, Marco Zorn's going to make a, he's going to come back out and, and do some, do some more uh, good or damage, depending on your perspective. 
Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate your kind words about the the reflecting pool, Um, and it's a pleasure to meet you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.